You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. We've been studying this book now for a number of months. And today I expect to deal with it for the last time, even though I'm not reading all through chapter 4. You'll notice if you look at that chapter, Colossians has an unusually long section of personal farewells, all of which is profitable. All God's Word is profitable. In fact, we could probably explore the character of each of these folks that Paul is saying goodbye to and some of the particular admonishments that he gives and learn from it. But I'm choosing not to do that. So today we're going to complete the treatment of this book with chapter 4 as I read verses 2 through 6. Listen to God's Word. Keep in mind what we looked at last time, the, the teaching, the exhortation to wives and husbands, children, fathers, slaves or employees, to live out the lordship of Christ in their lives. That same theme is here as we continue. Here's God's word. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Lord God, give us the insight to go into this passage with understanding, but then to see it translated into the matrix of our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of her works, Edith Schaefer described the evangelistic work that went on for many years at the Christian center called Labrie, which she and her husband, Dr. Francis Schaefer, conducted in the mountains of Switzerland. Many of you have heard of their work. One day, a college student who had come there A young man who, when he arrived, loudly professed that he was an atheist and came more or less to challenge what was going on there, a chip on the shoulder sort of, how dare you believe in God? I bet you can't convince me attitude. This man heard about Christ and the Bible and had been instructed for a number of weeks in the seminars and meetings at Labrie. And Edith Schaefer tells about the day that he burst into the room and made a, an announcement to people with his face flushed and his eyes sparkling as he said, shouting almost, I have just had the most exciting time in my whole life. For half an hour, I've been talking with the creator of the universe about his son, Jesus. Now that certainly is a remarkable example of a newborn Christian 
who had just prayed for the first time. And he could hardly contain the passion and excitement of it. And I wonder when I hear of an example like that, why it is, as we look at ourselves, that we have so little of that same sweet passion of the privilege we have of talking with our God and expressing praise to Him and seeking His guidance and blessing. You know, prayer is responsible for simply amazing things in history. At the voice of a single man of God, the Scripture says the hours of a day were lengthened as the sun seemed to stand still. Prayer has divided the sea and stilled its storms. It has shut the mouth of lions. It has fed thousands, opened prison doors. It was a praying, persevering church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that gathered and held on in prayer for several days until God poured out on them that wonderful fullness of His Holy Spirit that anointed the early church and launched it in ministry. Someone said prayer is a little bit like a deep-sea diver's oxygen tank, if you would think of it that way. It connects us to a source of divine life and breath. So we become free to move about and examine hidden glories of divine revelation that we wouldn't glimpse necessarily from above the ocean surface. Prayer gets us beneath and lets us see the purposes of God at work and discern things and understand things and breathe the life of God in Christ and feel that sense of His life stirring in us until we think His thoughts after Him according to the Scripture. And we claim the great biblical promises. Well, we come today, as I said, to this concluding passage in my plan to address Colossians. And while there are a number of verses following in which Paul makes farewells and gives admonitions, we're wrapping up here with verses 2 to 6, and there's plenty for us right here. And I remind you to keep this passage together in context with the large theme of this book of Colossians which is the theme, as we have it in the bulletin, of the supremacy of Christ or the lordship of Christ over every sphere of our existence. The world in general doesn't see it. Earlier, Paul called it a mystery. The world doesn't know anything about this king who rules. And yet God has revealed it. And those who by faith have come to Christ and bowed before him know that he is Lord before all things, even the creation itself. He is Lord over all things, and He dwells within all lives that bow to Him. We have that phrase, Christ in you, has been a key phrase of Colossians. Christ dwelling in you who call Him Lord. Last time we saw how Christ in you should make you a different wife, a different husband, a different child in relation to your parents, a different father, a different employee. Christ, the Lord of everything, in you, has been the theme of this book. And now as Paul ends this epistle, he leaves this last emphasis of Christ known in us as we pray. He's in us in our relation to God himself, and he's in us in our relationship to those who are outside the community of faith. Our text is about the fullness of our communication with God himself 
and also a fullness of communication with unbelievers. And so the letter wraps up and says, devote yourselves to prayer. I would summarize a, a twofold thought. I have just two main points for you today. That as living vessels indwelt by Christ, we first must speak persistently to God about His work among people. And then we must speak to people prudently about our knowledge of God. First of all, look at verses 2 through 4 here. I give it the heading, speaking persistently to God about His work among people. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. The English Standard Translation says this, continue steadfastly in prayer. It seems as though we're being told that our habit of speaking to God needs to be well established within a continuing stream of daily dialogue, even daily thinking. It's not isolated to those moments in our lives, maybe when we get on a mountaintop and (coughs) devote ourselves to some formal exercise of prayer. But rather, I think Paul visualizes prayer as something like breathing every day. That watchfully, he says, as we go through the day, we're watching what's going on. What is God doing? What are his providences in my circumstances? And we're thanking him as we look at the minute things happening. And all this draws us into a dialogue, draws us into a state of being in communion with God. Another passage from Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says simply, pray continually. Well, people would scoff and say that's not possible if it is formal prayer that they visualize. You can't be on your knees all the time. You, you can't be, you know, in 24-hour-a-day daily devotions. And yet, there's a call there that we can obey, a call to let a consciousness of God's work watchfully and thankfully dwell in our everyday communication. <coughs> lose my water here. Let me find it a minute. In Luke 18, we have a passage where Jesus raised the example of an elderly widow in a bit of a puzzling, at least to some people, puzzling parable. He told of a widow who had a particular injustice against her, and she came to the local magistrate, maybe justice of the peace or local judge of some kind, wanting to get this thing put right. For whatever reason, the justice wasn't very interested. Maybe he thought her cause wasn't that good or he just saw it as trivial, but for some reason he resisted dealing with it. But she kept coming back and coming back until finally the text says just to get rid of her, he dealt with and granted her what she had asked. Now that seems like such an odd example from what, for what Jesus draws from it, which his conclusion was, this is to teach us that we ought always to pray and not give up. So I have to go pester God and wear him down, and even though he doesn't want to do anything for me, eventually he'll give in? No, of course not. This is a parable of opposition, of contrast. It's teaching us, of course, what God is not and saying to us, look, here, even a human judge who, who is not very faithful in his duty and not very interested or compassionate or merciful 
can eventually be worn down to do what is right. If that can happen, just consider the father you have. And the whole wording that applies is, how much more will he give you what he asks, his dear children, his called ones, those he has loved in Jesus Christ? And so we ought always to pray and not give up because of who God is. He's not that uncompassionate judge at all. He's Father to us through Jesus Christ. We so tend to isolate the concept of prayer to what we do with it formally, whether it be gathering in a church prayer meeting or a small group in a home or praying with another individual or ourselves in daily devotions. We say, well, prayer happens when my head goes down and my eyes close and I fold my hands, or maybe in church, That, of course, is prayer, and you certainly should pray that way in what we might call formal or appointed prayer. But I still think that 4.2 here in Colossians is interested in a posture of the heart that's in a running dialogue with God almost all week long. It involves what we've given it the modern term today, multitasking. You can pray when you're driving your car. Eyes open, please. You can pray when you're doing your daily work concentrate on what you're doing, but most of us are capable of of doing a task at one level and at another level perhaps talking to God. God, this task is hard. I don't understand it. I'm not sure if I'm getting it right. Lead me. Guide me. Help me to be your servant here. We can do those things both at once. We can interact with our family or be shopping or doing work at the house or whatever and and pray. I've, I've said to you many times how uh, John Light and I both agree that mowing the lawn is a great time for prayer. Do the mechanical task and let your mind be engaged on the Lord. And in this way, we're watching and we're thanking. You hear the emphasis here on what, being watchful and thankful. We're looking at our lives and we're watching and we're saying, you know, God, God is a part of that, or God needs to be a part of that. Or, Lord, how I thank you for this little thing over here that it it came together when I thought it was going to be a bigger problem than it is. And so there's this dialogue of prayer that Ephesians 6.18 talks about, praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, being alert. You see the same emphasis? Alert, watchful, and praying for the saints. Prayer requires an alertness. It requires a deliberate Naming and saying, God is in that, or God needs to be in that, or I need God's aid here. I'm helpless here without my God. And that which can seem like a duty, and, and let's face it, many people do see prayer as nothing but a duty that they're, they're bad at, they, they have a hard time with it, and they face it as a duty. But it can move from duty to the level of a satisfying delight just as you'd be talking to a companion every day, taking hold of God in these many situations of life. Too many of us also, you see, have a what I would call, I don't want to be too deprecating because I indict myself as well, but we have a kindergarten approach to prayer, especially in the way it is so introverted. It is so about me. What do we usually pray about? My concerns, my health, my challenges, my sorrows. Actually, I don't think we usually pray about my joys, do we? Because 
when we're happy, we just forget that God had anything to do with that. But if we're in sorrow or in trouble, then we pray. And, and we go with a whole laundry list of my aches and my misfortunes and my needs. Or maybe we're generous enough to, to broaden it for the sick list of the church or those in the hospital or something like that. And that's all good. Nothing wrong with praying for those things. But Paul challenged prayer here to get a wider scope. And he said, look beyond yourself and pray for the ministry of the Word of God as it is going forward in the world. And in fact, even as he, a prisoner in chains, was implementing that ministry there in Rome. Others were learning about Christ even as he was not able to leave the place where he dwelt. He said, pray that God will open a door for our message. You see, if Paul had still been in the kindergarten of prayer, he wouldn't have said that, would he? What what might he have said? He would have said, pray that God will let me out of jail. There's a door that needs to be opened, and it's a cell. But he wasn't worried about that. He He didn't say that has to happen for God's purposes to be fulfilled. He just said, pray that the Word might do its work. God has strange purposes. And we wonder, why is it we have to pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled? Why does God need us to plead for things that He, in His omnipotence and sovereignty, designs to do? Nobody can answer that. I can't tell you why it is so, but it is very evident from history and from the Scriptures that it is so. God awaits His people to plead and to seek and to join with Him in his tasks, and then he pours out his best. And that which is mysterious about Christ, this passage alludes once again to proclaiming the mystery of Christ. You've encountered that word in this uh, uh, book before, in chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery that was held back from people seeing it for many generations has been made known in Christ, and it's still being made known. Paul says, pray that the mystery would keep on being revealed and doors would open so people would see Christ. Plead for that. Ask for that. And do it on a daily basis. Back a hundred or more years ago, Hudson Taylor, you know perhaps by name as the head of the great ministry in China, the China Inland Mission, Hudson Taylor's ministry was remarkable there as he led and directed many and There were so many village stations throughout China, some of them in very obscure places where a missionary had gone in and established a church or a base where he was witnessing and people were coming to the Lord. And Hudson Taylor wrote of being aware of one particular station in a remote area that had seen a tremendous response. Many Chinese people had come to Christ, and the the young church there just seemed to be flourishing and growing in a rapid way, much, much more so, remarkably more so than other mission stations. And others around thought, wow, look at that work over there. Look what's going on. Then once Mr. Taylor was back in England to speak about the ministry and go to the churches in London and other parts of England and raise funds for China Inland Mission, and in one church he was approached one night by a couple who started asking him about the individual who ministered at that mission station where all that spiritual fruit was going on. They knew his name. They said, well, how is he 
and what can you tell us about this that he's doing and the school? And they showed a great deal of knowledge about what was going on there at that place. And Hudson Taylor said, well, this is interesting to me that you, you know so much. How do you know so much about this? And they said, oh, well, Mr. whatever his last name was, was, our, was my college roommate, the man said, at Cambridge. And so when he departed for the field, my wife and I pledged to him a pledge that we have now sought to maintain nearly every day for 10 years. We have prayed for his ministry, and his letters have have given us information, and we have taken that information to the throne of God and spread it out and said, oh, God, empower what is happening. Work in this problem, and so on. And Hudson Taylor said to them, now I see the key to God's rare blessing in that place propelled by that kind of faithful prayer. God calls us into a, a dialogue. You know, we're the, we're the children of the Internet. We have all kinds of dialogues going on over the Internet. Some of it's really rather stupid and unnecessary, people blogging and chatting and doing all these things. God calls us to dialogue with himself about his purposes in the world, and he wants us to plead with him for blessing to come, that doors would open for the gospel And he desires that we would desire and seek that which he is already intending to do. So there are many ways in which we need to keep ourselves informed about Christian work. I don't know if a flood of missionary information that is available in this congregation just goes right past you without you noticing. I fear that it does in in many cases. But what I would suggest to you is that you at least select some you can't possibly digest everything every missionary is doing or every organization that, that we support is doing, but select some that particularly interest you and take hold of those letters and bulletins and things that come along and get yourself on their own direct lists. Most of them these days are delighted to send you their own literature. Find out what's happening and take that information to the Lord and lay it out and say, Oh, God, may doors open here as Walt Mueller works at the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding, or a couple in, in the seminary in France, or whatever is going on, that God would open his doors. Your prayers are very, very important. You are joining in spiritual battle against the forces of darkness as you pray that way. You are going to claim things and see God pull down strongholds and leap over obstacles that there is no explanation for except the work of His Spirit as His people pray. Well, secondly, I, I do see the, this as a linked and unified passage here. As verses 5 and 6 go on, it seems like the subject changes, if you're reading there. From pray that I may proclaim the gospel, Paul suddenly says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. It looks like an abrupt change. But I would see this relationship here. We have been talking about speaking persistently to God about ministry to people. And now linked from that and going from that, Paul is admonishing us to speak prudently to other people about God. After all, we are Christ's worldly representatives. We need to be sensible in our actions, alert to opportunities, and gracious in how we represent this great Savior, both in our examples and our actions as well as our words. So the, the word here is be wise. 
Be wise. Use some discernment in how you act towards outsiders. Now, who are the outsiders? I would think every commentator agrees. The person outside of faith in Christ. The outsider might live in your home or work beside you or be very close to you in relationship some way, but he's an outsider in not sharing in conscious recognition of the lordship of Christ. Be wise in how you act towards him. Let me just ask you, haven't you had the experience that I have fairly regularly, actually, at cringing at the way that you hear about some person who claims to be a born-again Christian or some Christian group behaving out there in public? And the newspaper or the magazine or whatever attacks that group. And who are those people anyway? Why do they act the way they do? And look at that arrogance they have. And we sit back and say, well, you, you might say, well, they're suffering for Christ. Well, sometimes they're suffering for being foolish. Sometimes they're suffering for not being very wise. You know, is it really our goal, and I indict broad-stream evangelicalism these days, which I hope is beginning to learn a lesson, that, folks, the main objective of the kingdom of God on earth is not necessarily to get conservative Republicans elected to every office in the United States of America. Now, I'm not indicting a party, and I'm not indicting political action, but that's not our main agenda. And sometimes we've lost sight of that, and we've acted in ways that, that make people think that's what we're here for, and they look at us and, and think, well, those foolish Christians, they're just bumbling around. Or we treat people with an arrogance that condemns them before a conversation can even start with them. And we don't win a hearing because our actions slam the door shut first. Think of Paul having to write a letter like 1 Corinthians, where throughout the whole letter, it seems, he almost had to censure some of the people anyway in, in Corinth if not many of them, as being rather obtuse in their behavior, in their sectarian fights, their spiritual one-upmanship, their doctrinal quarrels, and even in open immorality that they thought they could live contrary to God and yet claim the name of Christ. Paul, as much as said to them time after time, you make your gospel, the gospel of Jesus, a laughingstock before outsiders. A sensible, wise Christian life has balance to it. It has reliability. It has generosity, courtesy. By these things, we become trusted by people in the world. We even, perhaps, I would hope, become winsome. And then they begin to listen. And they begin to notice if they're not just laughing at us and rejecting us. Paul says, make the most of every opportunity in verse 5. Now, what he doesn't mean here, I don't think, is what often happens in evangelical Christianity is that we think of witness and we present the idea of witnessing to an outsider of the faith as if it was a sales opportunity. You know, go into sales training and get your sales routine down so that when you encounter an outsider, you'll have the steps memorized and you'll be able to bring him through that mechanical procedure and, whoa, maybe you'll even close the deal and get a profession of faith. There's nothing wrong with training for evangelism. Don't mishear me. But when it is seen as a sales procedure, it automatically depersonalizes 
the individual you're going to be speaking to. And if we could banish that idea that the goal is to close the deal and approach people with the understanding that we need to learn their needs, we need to listen to them, we need to authentically care for them, and maybe unselfishly serve them even for a good period of time before we will have their authentic trust and open ears to our witness. Witness has to be one, in a sense. It's an opportunity, and you earn it with outsiders. And if you would look back again at verses 2 to 4 with the idea of prayer, relate that here. You need to pray for that person. Not just come and say, I've got my outline memorized, and let me see if I can at least get to stage step three with you, and then maybe in my, my next appointment we'll get all the way to step six. No. Will you care for that person? Will you show that person that you desire a relationship without strings, praying for God to work in that relationship? You may want to let them know you're praying, but maybe at first you don't even need to do that. But do pray. Pray that God would bring his gospel to bear on that other person. I like what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Peter similarly advises us and says, Always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, notice what he's assuming. He's assuming that something has happened that they're going to ask you. What is it about you anyway? And that isn't going to happen if you've lived a life that has turned them off and closed the doors. But Peter says, when they ask you, answer them in a particular way with gentleness and respect. You see, that assumes that witness is authentic. Yes, it's looking for an opening and an opportunity, but that opportunity that arises naturally out of caring relationship with others. Lastly, Paul says here about that, speaking prudently to people about God. He says, be wise in your choice of words used. Now, you might know that some outsider, family member, pretty good friend, is engaged in immoral activity, is perhaps living with someone outside of marriage, or is, declares to be committed to homosexuality or any number of other things, uses foul language left and right. And that may be the presenting thing that, that is so big that you can't get past that to have a relationship with that person. If so, I would say that you see it necessary that you're coming to that person and saying, now wait, let me declare the terms of our relationship. You know, you're living in immorality. If you would just deal with that, you and I could have a relation. Well, you say, I never would be that crude. And yet sometimes that's exactly what we communicate. We build walls instead of open doorways. There'll come a time in an authentic relationship when you can show them what the Word of God says about immorality. I'm not suggesting that it be ignored. But you have to win an opening or you won't have listening ears. That consuming phrase of the New Testament, speaking the truth in love, is a very profound phrase. It's about timing. It's about authentic caring. It's about waiting until God's truth will be heard from your lips because they know you care. Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt 
a little unsure exactly what he means there. He could mean a lot of things, but I think it primarily means let your conversation be interesting. Maybe that even includes wit, humor. Let, let yourself be a person who's engaging, not simply spouting a lot of boring things, but let there be a flavor about you that stands out and is attractive. Well, you say, how do I do that? The best answer I know is to say, once again, it's about Christ in you. Do you remember what they said about Jesus in the beginning of his ministry? The crowds listened to him and they said, never did anyone speak like this man. He's remarkable. And I don't think they were saying he's the smartest man we ever heard. He was certainly saying intelligent things. But, but there was a sincerity, an authenticity. Jesus just connected all the dots, and people said, nobody ever spoke like that. And you say, well, I'm not good at talking. I'm not clever. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a psychologist. How am I supposed to speak in this flavorful way? Well, perhaps the answer is dependence on Christ and saying, Lord, speak through me. Lord, let me find the words because I don't feel very adequate to know what they are for this particular person. But, but even just a whispered prayer when you're in, in a conversation, Lord, help me here. Help me to convey that which will care for this person and show who you are in this conversation. Proverbs 18.21 declares, the tongue has powers of life and death. That applies to this passage in a concluding way today. If the tongue has powers of life and death, then it's important how we speak to God about other people. And it's important how we speak to other people about God. And God has promised that by prayer and dependence on Him, that wisdom and that empowerment will come to us. I close by reminding you of the central theme of Colossians once more. There are many verses that might be said to summarize it, but I'll, for the moment, say chapter 2, verse 9 does it pretty well, where it draws together and says that the fullness and glory of the unseen God dwelt historically and bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. And then it says that all who own Christ by faith as Lord, quote, have been given fullness in Christ. That's the astounding thesis of Colossians. Christianity is not about intellectual assent to a bunch of doctrines. It's about the fullness of the invisible God made visible in Christ and now dwelling in those who honor him as Lord. It's an astounding proposition that we are vessels remade for the occupation of the eternal God in Jesus Christ. I close with a prayer we think was written by St. Patrick. St. Patrick was not a mythical person. He's a real person who lived around 450 A.D. He wrote this prayer. I like to think he might have been reading Colossians before he wrote it. Here it is. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ above me. Christ below me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ all about me to guard and direct me that each work undertaken shall be 
by, with, and in him. And thus be done to his glory. Amen. Our Father, may this astonishing fact, Christ, the fullness of what you are, dwelling in those who belong to him by sincere faith and therefore accomplishing works of power that our own words and thoughts and actions could never do in this world without you would be the reality we would take away from this marvelous epistle. May we see in Christ our all in all, our fountain of praise, and the energy to live as you call us to live, not by our own strength, but by his at work in us, to your honor and praise. Amen.